welcome to another episode of our podcast, The Shift. I'm Shay Candish, the New South Wales Nurses and Midwives Association's Assistant General Secretary and the host of this show. Emergency departments are the front doors of our hospital system and often one of the most stressful and adrenaline fueled areas of any hospital. For members of the community, it's the only place they seek in the most dire of circumstances. Yet for members of our profession, we experience this hectic work environment around the clock. It's also a specialty area that's been incredibly understaffed and underfunded over the past decade, leading to increased staff burnout and escalating violence or aggression. Today, I'm joined by emergency clinical nurse specialist, Kelly Falconer. Kelly's the branch president of the association's Wyom branch on the Central Coast and a longtime activist for patient safety and safe staffing ratios in EDs. Thanks for joining us today, Kelly. Hey, everyone. <laughs> so great to have you. So look, Kelly, can you start off by telling us a bit about yourself and what drew you, like the adrenaline junkies we all are, to work in ED? Um, well, I've been nursing since uh, 1998 and I started off doing my new grad program, um, moved to surgical, quite enjoyed the surgical, um, but surgical just didn't seem quite enough for me. So I applied for emergency and um, never really looked back, but also whilst doing my emergency, I think I joined in about 2001. Um, I've been doing quite a bit of um, agency work so getting the kind of uh, work that we don't get up here on the central coast so your big cardiac surgeries your neurosurgeries your ortho surgeries so whilst also working emergency um, over the years over the decades pre-children um, I was able to get uh, extra experience with surgical as well um, but yeah I just I love emergency I love the the chaos that it is being able to uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not many people like it. Um, I love the, the fact that um, you can have chaos and then you can fix that chaos temporarily to make it, you know, someone who's literally um, dying, uh, not die and um, saving them. So that's just, um, I guess, an amazing experience. So that's what I like. I always loved, uh, we used to talk about it as being organized chaos, which I know sounds yep. like very strange words to put together, but there is a real organization that sits behind the chaos that everyone else is seeing where yep. when you work there, you know exactly what's going on. Everyone has a job. Everyone knows what their job is. Yep. You know, the one thing I find really remarkable, and I'd love to get your kind of take on it is um, there's few places I've ever worked where I understood teamwork like I yes, did when 100%. I worked as an ED nurse. Can you talk yep. about that a bit? Um, so it's teamwork like no other, I guess. Um, everybody comes together. Um, we have uh, all, all allied health um, physios and we have um, the doctors, all the different range of doctors from junior right up to staff specialists, um, the nurses uh, right from new grads, um, ENs, uh, right up through CNSs and the NUMS, we all have to join together to save, you know, potentially what's coming in, whether it be a trauma, um, whether it be someone having a baby. I know they do have babies in ED. <laughs> happened we last try and week avoid it as much as <laughs> possible yes we do <laughs> um but it's you know we just have to say you know a sentence and everybody stops it becomes a very um it's a very loud place but it can become extremely quiet um and we work with leaders um and we listen to leaders and we do a lot of repeating but yeah teamwork is um 100 necessary and it's 
you, I don't think you t you tend to get that on um, other wards, other specialties, as much as what you do mm. in our circumstance. So even other professions, you know, like I think I just found it completely remarkable that you can walk into a recess with someone you've never met before. You all know what your job is, and you run yep. that team like a like a piece of machinery. You know, yep. you know if you're the scribe, you know if you're the airway, the doctor walks in and says, I need this and this is how we do it. And, you know, like it just, it's just. And like we prepare efficient. at the beginning of the shift. So we, we give our roles at the beginning of the shift. Who's going to do what? Who is going to do drugs? Who's going to do airway? Who's going to scribe? Who's going to be team leader? And um, the doctors do that as well because they also have their jobs and it's not just one doctor in there. You'll get two or three, depending yeah. on the situation. Um, so everybody has their roles. We know our roles. We've rehearsed our roles. We do have... Um, uh, days where we go off and uh, in our own time do certain um, scenes or crisis, whether it be a cardiac theme or whether it be a um, uh, obs and gyne theme or a paediatric theme. So we tend to have themes where we go off and we we practice these scenarios as a team um, in a in a practice situation. So we get kind of good at it. And the simulations really improved over the years, hasn't it? You know, like oh, I remember yes. going off and doing <laughs> some. Um, team leader trauma training and you know the simulation that we had access to which was at North Shore was just incredible you know you've yep. got mannequins that breathe and have pulses yes, blink. And like <laughs> the, blink, the blinking ones are pretty scary so yeah. um, the new grads uh, sorry the um, the students um, in the labs these days have those uh, dummies and they blink they're, they're amazing you know you can set the observations on them you can change them um, you can change the uh, airway noises um, so they're just they're, they're fa fantastic and very realistic yeah um, the obs and gyne ones are as well <laughs> a bit too seen much one a bit too those. scary <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's a great way to learn I think it's a really good yep. opportunity to give people exposure to you know as close to the situation as you can without really being there yep well, I mean, we, we had a simulation done um, just last week and the simulation that they practice um, was a simulation that we wouldn't get very often. Um, it was an obs and gyne. Um, and strangely enough, within a week of doing that simulation as a practice, um, that exact uh, uh, patient came through. Mm. So it was an amazing experience and they were all hands on deck. Hey, we did this. We, we did this last do. week. So it was very well run. Um, and it was kind of like a yeah, good proud moment. Pat on, pat on the back for it. I yeah. bet. It's lovely yeah. when you know exactly, you feel well prepared to deal with what's yeah. coming in the door. And that's probably a really good segue, I think, to talk a bit about being prepared for what's coming through the door. You know, so I came, <laughs> that's right, have a giggle. So I came from an ED uh, and what brought me to work at the association is that I felt as though um, I wasn't prepared for what was coming through the door. You know, I spent yep. the first part of my career feeling like I was a pretty crappy nurse, like I just couldn't get it together. And then I realized, you know, a good four or five years in, actually, I'm a good nurse and yep. I'm not the problem here. It's the system that's the problem. And so yep. we got really active um, in terms of staffing to try and improve staffing. And for us, it was particularly in relation to our resource base. Um, but yeah. <laughs> But, um, you know, I talk to ED nurses everywhere and my story is not at all unique. So talk to me yep. about what your experience has been like, especially right. over the years. Like try and talk me okay. through how you've seen it change. 
Um, so being here, being a um, an old hand, <laughs> I'm an old handmaiden now. Um, <laughs> I consider myself young, but the newbies don't. Um, working over the years, when I started, um, I had we were a smaller unit, way smaller than what we are now. Um, working in Wyong Hospital, um, we were only seeing average of about a hundred a day, between eighty and a hundred, um, and that was back in two thousand and one. And every person I worked with, I was the most junior. Uh, every person I worked with um, had maybe 15 to 20 years experience. Mm -hmm. So in actual fact, when I got on board, I had so many mothers and fathers watching me and teaching me and this is how it happens and kind of thrown into situations. And I learned really, really well and I learned really quickly. Um, which was a great thing because um, 15 years down the track, we're now seeing uh, over 200 people a day. So 230, we had a record the other day, 259, and we went to a level black. So we're seeing massive numbers. Um, the big problem is uh, our staff are extremely junior. Mm -hmm. So November last year, we had 20 to 25 FTE short in our emergency department couldn't recruit, can't recruit because people just weren't recruiting through COVID and with all the issues we're having. So we decided not to look for senior staff and we recruited 20 um, junior staff. So they were only um, one year uh, experience, some were a couple of years experience, but not really big on emergency. So we've just hired an extra 20 staff members to come to our emergency department with very, very little experience. So having not many seniors on the floor, it's very hard for them to learn. We mm -hmm. did um, hire one extra educator, but we only have three educators for 120 staff. And when you've got 20 brand new staff coming onto the floor, it just makes it extremely hard to teach and be with them when we're at maximum impact. Um, being a regional, hospital. Um, we have these issues. Are we regional? Um, are we not? We're in that uh, area where we're on the central coast. We're an hour from Sydney, but our numbers are proving to be a category A hospital, but we're um, classes a category B just because we don't have our theatres open 24 hours and certain specialists. Um, the issue with that is we get staffed as a category B hospital. Um, which means we're seeing the numbers of A's, but we've only got staffing for B. So we've got less staffing to deal with these um, sometimes horrible situations. So we have three resus bays. Previous to our opening our new building, we had three resus bays and only two nurses working in them. This becomes extremely hard. So over the years, we would only have a resuscitation in a resuscitation bay. Um, so when I started, they were full cardiac arrest that would go in a resus bay. Now we get all our chronic, um, unwell, extremely, um, I say critically ill patients in resus. Um, we only had three resus bays, but we had two nurses. One of those would be junior. So the senior nurse would be teaching the junior, but we would have all three bays filled. Yeah. Now, this wasn't appropriate because when we're talking a resuscitation, you need a minimum of three nurses. Well, that was our minimum because we couldn't staff with much more than that. So we would have a minimum of three, but we've only got two nurses. So we'd have to start pulling nurses off the floor. Depending on how big the resus was, we would need to start pulling other more people people's. from other areas into yeah. the resuscitation. It actually took us seven months 
seven months of hard fighting to get that third resuscitation nurse. Um, we had to go to the IRC to get that nurse. We had to um, try and get stats um, uh, off all our patients that were coming through. We did a lot of work in our own time along with um, full-time work. Um, we had to put out questionnaires, um, how many patients are in, what times they're in, what they're in with, what categories they are. Um, we ended up going down to the IRC and we were still told, I don't think it's nurses you need. I'm sorry, <laughs> lost for words, because what do we need? If well, someone needs re resuscitating, they need a nurse. They, yeah. uh, you know, it's just, it's just a continual fight. I feel that I have to fight for everything we have. We are the biggest growing area in the state. The Central Coast has grown tenfold. It's just massive. Our hospital doesn't cope. We've just had a new hospital built and it's not big enough for the population that we have. Mm. And the population is growing. Um, it's a loss for words. <laughs> Yeah. Look, it's it's really interesting. And to be honest, I'm amazed that the IRC um, outcome was that you got the extra nurse because that's not normally our experience. You know, the commission very rarely rules in our favour despite yep. having mount, mountains of evidence. Uh, it yep. really is not, it, it rarely operates as the independent um, arbitrator that we would hope that it would be. Yep. Uh, so it's a real frustration of the process normally. And listening to you talk through your story, I'm having kind of conniptions yep. <laughs> because we did exactly the same. We had four beds and two nurses uh, in our resus bay. We did a big time in motion study. We pulled patient records. We yep. wrote a huge brief that outlined all of the uh, moments of care where we were forced to um, basically work outside of policy uh, yep. and put that brief toward the executive and we ended up managing to convince them to give us an additional uh, we could we couldn't convince ours um, I told many a story and my story went a little bit like okay so I'm working with a junior I have a patient who's pulmonary edema uh, a one-on-one -on -one, uh, requiring some um, BiPAP mm. I get my second patient in who also requires BiPAP so I teach my well, my junior nurse, a five-minute session on how to use the BiPAP machine, but that's okay because I'll be coming in and out. Um, I then go and set up my BiPAP on my second patient who's a one-on-one. -on -one. So I'm now going, leaving that patient to go in and see that the first patient is okay because a junior staff member has it. Um, and it's an airway risk. Uh, and then um, before long, I get my third patient in who is a urosepsis who's uh, rapid AF at 150 HB of 70 febrile um, and what do I do and I put that to our executive and I said so I had to leave my airway risk to go save the patient that was uh, pretty much dying um, mm. and I was told well why would you leave an airway risk and I said well I had to make a decision um, and we're making these decisions every day who's mm. going to live who's going to die who is the sickest yeah. I shouldn't be making that decision and we're making those decisions every day and these decisions live with us and we go home um, and we can't think well what what we can't settle at nights, most of us, because we're thinking, what could I have done better? Could I have gone in? Or the patients that I'm looking after, and I'm sorry, but that patient is dying um, and is now palliated. So maybe I can leave that patient for that little bit longer whilst I'm trying to save this one. So the palliated patient doesn't get the care they need 
um, in stage and that also affects us too. I've got to say um, the palliative care patients were the ones that often hit me the hardest yep. because being in an ED is not a place to be palliated. The experience yep. is not pleasant and they are the people that often miss out and, you know, we treat our animals better, frankly, you know, to see oh, people suffering, yep. Um, yep. you know, we wouldn't, we would not leave, we wouldn't leave animals to suffer. Uh, yep. And that's, that's frankly the thing that happens when we're forced to make decisions about whose lives are saved. Palliation patients are the ones that miss out on care. Oh, they do. And they may not be palliative when they come in, but the decision may be made you know, um, end of life decisions are made at that point because we've done everything we can and it's it's not it's not going to go well. Um, and so they've made a decision to palliate. And unfortunately, when that happens in ED, as you said, um, uh, a decision to palliate becomes the decision to, oh, well, now I can go help work on my patient that yeah. I am trying to save. And so unfortunately, that patient does not get the care that they need and they often die alone. Yeah. Yeah, which is really sad. Yeah. So that probably takes us precisely to where we need to be, which is why, why do we need to see a change, right? All of these issues that we've spoken about have obviously driven you and your activism. So talk to me a bit about how you've been a union activist and talk to me a bit about your recent experience at the strike on the 15th of Feb. Um. Why I've become the activist I have, I could, I could probably leave this profession very, very easily. Um, I don't need it to keep me going. Um, I have other sources, so I, I could leave, but I've been in it for so long and I have so much passion. Um, I am someone who can talk. I'm happy to talk in front of people and I know that I can be a good leader. Um, I know that when I talk, people do listen. Um, Several years ago, you know, we had our union, we had our representatives, but it wasn't overly active. Um, and it just came at a right time for me. Um, and I stepped in, I was pushed in <laughs> to be president. You'll be right, you'll be right. Uh, and I took it by the horns as I do. And um, I've uh, been driving that beast to get change before I can happily leave. Um, I was only talking to one of my execs the other day and said I could leave at any time I don't have to be here and I think that's what gives me my passion yeah. um, some people are stuck to the job because they have mortgages they have rent um, they're really stuck I'm actually not stuck and so I feel that I can stay for longer because I don't have that looming over the top of me um, I said but I will not leave this place until I see change I have a voice, I'm very passionate, and I now have a following. And um, I'm creating my army, so to speak, because <laughs> <laughs> I want nursing to be good. I want it to be the way it was when I started. I want nurses to be able to provide appropriate care for their patients. When was the last time I had a chat with a patient? Um, it's, it sounds so awful, but I was just admitting a patient prior to here and the patient's trying to have a conversation with me, like a pleasant conversation. And all I could think about in my head was, I don't have time for this. I can't talk to you. I know you want to have a chat and I know you want that conversation, but I've got three other patients that I've got to admit. Um, and so that to me, it's just horrible. Why, why can't I stand there for five minutes having a chat with my patient? 
Hmm. Why do I have to run this patient up to the ward to get to the next patient? Like, why are we so strapped? Oh, because we're not staffed appropriately. If we had our ratios, we would have the time to build up a rapport with our patients and give them the care they need. Um, I just, so many things are being missed. I just, so that's where my passion has come from. I have three children. I have a large family. I have a large extended family. We all live in this area. And I think that, you know, if my family comes to this hospital, I want them to receive appropriate care. Or if my children join nursing, I want them to come out into a profession that's valued. And right now I just, I don't think we're valued by um, many people. Uh, We had a conversation the other day. Our government doesn't value us and they've showed that they don't value us because on February 15th, when we had our action, um, we didn't get anything from it. And I think our problems were we're such a caring profession that majority of people came on their days off. So when we go on strike, we go on strike on our days off. So it's not an, an actual effective strike as such, whereas most other professions, if they're going to strike, they just drop and they leave. Mm. Um, this time around, I've made it a little bit different. Um, and I've told people it's your right to strike. Um, we haven't done this for a decade. We haven't been listened to and we're going to be listened to this time. So I've encouraged all my union members to come off the floor to make a stand. And it's not that the patients will miss out. There are patients on the floor, but we we need to be heard and we need the government um, to make a change because Mm. our profession, we're we're losing valuable staff members. We won't get those back. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So let's watch this space is what I would say because we're going to keep the pressure up until we get the government to listen. So let's watch this space. Let's talk a bit about being a CNS. Talk me through what it's like being a CNS. What's the requirement um, for you in terms of satisfying that CNS um, uh, classification? What do you have to do to get to that point? A lot. Um, so as a person who loves to speak, um, and is quite comfortable with people, um, and has been around for a long time, you tend to learn a lot of stuff. Um, so I take a lot of junior people under my wings. And so when we're working in recess, um, they will put a junior person with you to go through things. Um, when you're working at triage, they'll put you with a junior person learning to triage so that we can keep an eye on triages and just talk about it, you know, so why did you do that? Or this is why I've done this and just question so that they're getting some advice from someone who's been around for a while. To become a CNS, you have to have a minimum of three years experience on the floor, um, uh, plus or minus doing your graduate certificate, which I did way back in 2003, (laughs) I think. Um, So it's just ongoing education, being that support person, being a resource person. Um, However, uh, LAHDs have brought in a... um, A new grading system, which is really not favourable to a lot of people. Um, And the reason being is it takes a lot of time. We as CNSs don't get time off the floor. We don't get non-clinical hours. So our time is basically spent on the floor. So providing that you can um, provide evidence that you're 
um, being a resource person, educating people, uh, being that senior with someone at triage or recess or on the floor, that, that should be more than enough with your experience. Um, however, we've got a new grading system that requires us to get 50 points from three different sections. Um, and it gets quite hard for some people um, doing different courses outside of work, um, reading journals, which is not a problem, um, but you've got to manage to get 50, uh, 150 points and there's three sections and you've got to, three or four sections, and you've got to get a minimum of 30 points from each section. So it's getting a little bit hard. And I think the reason why they're doing this is to um, limit our CNSs on the floor. And mm -hmm. I think that's got to do with money more than anything, because we've got um, a number of people who are valuable resource people on the floor, but they might not just be able to have the time to get their resources together, to build up this portfolio. Um, and so then they get denied their CNS. So there's a couple of things to dig into there. So um, from the industrial perspective, a clinical nurse specialist is a self-graded position. Um, and so we've seen quite a few LHDs try and put in these really onerous processes um, to require people to satisfy the criteria. And sometimes they have to reapply annually and all of this sort of palaver. Um, and so I'd encourage members who are hearing this that if you're having something that um, talks to that experience, you should get in touch with your organiser because that's not the award requirement. Uh, and we should really be evaluating that and pushing back against it where it is, you know, this overly bureaucratic process the other thing is when we're working in an environment like ED ICU you know those specialties we've been talking about where we're seeing this absolute loss of experienced staff then the very small things that we can do like giving someone a CNS recognition and the pay that goes with that CNS classification is a really small contribution to maintaining yep. Um, that, that clinical experience within the department and recognising people for the value that they offer. And it goes some small way to retaining those staff. So, you know, we need to try and get our um, nurse managers and uh, the executive to really think about whether the processes that they have are supporting those experienced people to be there and to stay there and to share their learning or are yep. they making it so difficult that that's another reason why we're just seeing all of these experienced nurses walk out the door? Uh, all our um, eighth-year thereafter nurses uh, don't see a point in doing all the extra work, and it is all the extra work. Mm -hmm. If you don't have a portfolio ready, um, it, it's a lot of extra work, and it is annual regrading, um, and they they don't see a point in it. It's only I think a do maybe a dollar or a dollar fifteen an hour more, so yeah. it's actually not a great deal more. And the LHD could really make that feasible to those staff that are educating every day because we don't have many senior staff um, but they just don't want to and that it is very sad because we do need to keep our staff um, on the floor we're, we're hemorrhaging senior staff we can't even keep the staff that we hired we've gone from having the 20 that we hired prior to Christmas um, back down to I think we've still got 8.5 FTE short mm. That was after our big recruitment. Mm. We just can't keep staff. And it's such a challenge in an environment like ED because there's very specific roles that only experienced staff can undertake, like triage, for example, like working in recess. You know, when you go and put yep. a brand new new grad or a nurse that's never worked, you know, in ED before into a, a recess situation, you know, you're really 
uh, you're really it's not supporting yep. and you're not supporting their learning. You know, putting people outside of their comfort zone is one thing, but doing it in an environment where they're out of scope uh, really just gives people such a terrifying experience that they don't want to stay and they don't want to come back. Yep. So, you know, we need to support new people into these specialties and give them, you know, reasonable opportunities to kind of learn through that very steep learning curve that they often will have when they're starting in a new specialty. Oh, it's very steep. <laughs> <laughs> they, they are having a very steep learning curve because we do have to get so many staff, um, I guess, graduated up to our resus level within mm. a 12 month period because we've only hired um, an extra educator for 12 months. Mm. Tough ask. Um, so we have two educators for 130 staff mm. um, and they've only hired one extra for one year to get those staff up to a resus level. So we're talking extremely junior staff yeah. up to a secondary resus level. So they should be able to be proficient in um, doing assessments. Um, and I, I just, I can't, I can't see it because we just don't have the staff on the floor to be with them, to make them comfortable enough to be in there. Mm. yeah it's a pretty high ask I think yep. well look Kelly uh I think that is there anything that you want to cover that we haven't covered um no I just think it's been a devastating COVID I mm. think you know I've never been overwhelmed in my life through emergency except for during COVID um I, I do have a, a a distinct shift where I had 30 people in what we call the red waiting room um, that was outside in our front foyer in the car park. And yeah. I had 30 patients out there um, on one day. It was 35 degree heat. I was in full PPE. Once they've been triaged, they're considered we need to be seeing them. I had to be out there outside by myself doing observations. Um, and, and when what you were find you thinking when you were, when you were out there, 35 degree heat with all those patients, what were you thinking to yourself? Oh, I can't swear, <laughs> but it was literally an old moment. Um, I literally did. I, I was just beside myself and I've never felt this way before because I stood out there and I thought someone's going to die today. Someone is going to die and I feel like it's my responsibility. And I was taking observations on a COVID positive elderly man who ended up having a blood pressure of uh, I think it was, it was under 90 systolic. So it was between 80 and 90 systolic. Now on the wards, that would be a rapid response. Yeah. But here we have an 83 year old man sitting outside who'd been sitting out for four hours because we didn't have a bed. It was 35 degree heat. What do I do? Like, this is a rapid response on the ward. This is a, you know, oh, major issue on the ward but here I am he was not alone he was not solo but I had nowhere to go yeah um we now have four resus beds um but one is non-commissioned we only have three that we're using mm. so for the past couple of days we've been using four beds with three staff in there and then the back bed. phone call well this is what happens but when you've got four resuscitations happening and no one can go anywhere hence the fifth back call comes through they're actually doing active resuscitation out in the triage area with yeah. four patients in it's um quite scary times working here and we, we don't have those staff to look after those patients like it's mm. just insane i'm all for this i i will fight to the end <laughs> well i'll be there fighting with you <laughs> Thank you yes. so much again and no uh, we'll catch up.
No worries. Thank you very much. Thanks, Kelly. Right. We'll be right back after a quick word about the New South Wales Nurses and Midwives Association's Continuing Professional Education Scheme. Did you know that the New South Wales Nurses and Midwives Association members can access over 60 CPD courses for free? Just log on to Member Central on the Association website to find out more. That's nswnma.asn.au. And if you're not yet a member, join today and get access to these courses straight away. That's it for this episode of The Shift with Shay. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Kelly and I look forward to seeing you in a fortnight with more stories from the world of nursing and midwifery. If you haven't done so yet, make sure to subscribe to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also follow the New South Wales Nurses and Midwives Association on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter and LinkedIn so you can stay up to date with our services and campaigns. This podcast was recorded on Indigenous land. We acknowledge all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people listening to this podcast. This land was never ceded. It always was and always will be Aboriginal land.